Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 2, Episode 7, Death Mask. It was written by Scott Buck and directed by John Maybury. In this episode, Sevilia takes out a final curse on Attia, Timon struggles between faith and family, and Pullo's love life becomes significantly more complicated. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey there. What did you think of this episode? I'm, I'm not that keen. Uh, <laughs> You're going to talk me around again, I've, though? I've got to. I like bits of it. Yeah. I like some of the ritual-y stuff. And yeah. The, I like the curse, as we'll see. Yes. Um, yes, that was all good. There was uh, too much sex. A lot of... Uh, People watching other people having sex. Yes, there was that too. There's a kind of peep show element to it. Yeah, there's going to be a wedding and there's going to be a hanging. There's two weddings. Either way, we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. I think I'm paraphrasing Robin Hood Men in Tights there okay, very badly. Well, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to draw on. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, look out for our rewatch podcast on Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> so I liked this episode. Okay. Well, I did. Talk me around. I think... Um, there was a lot of sex. The more I think about it, I'm here going, did I really like the episode? Oh, maybe I'll talk you right. Okay. There wasn't enough history in it for me. And ah, that's, yeah. Well, well okay. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the uh, titular death mask. Now, I assume that that's just directly referring to the mask of Brutus that Sevilia has at the start of this episode. Yep. I'm trying to think about what other context it could be applied to throughout the episode. Uh, but Rhiannon, you talk about those things. <laughs> so the Romans did have masks of their ancestors in their atrium. Mm-hmm. If it's a death mask, that implies it's been made when he's dead. Um, I don't understand, given what happens at the end of the previous episode, how that could occur. Yeah, so the previous episode essentially showed Brutus being an anonymous corpse on the battlefield, unless they came across him off screen later on and go, oh, look, there he is. <laughs> what happened to his finger? <laughs> so it's it's possible that that happened. But having said that, when I looked into it, they often took casts of yeah. death masks during life. Yeah. So they here's were. something that I prepared earlier. Yeah. Exactly. So it's not entirely a death mask, but it's it's a mask of an, a significant, I guess, the most significant man of that household. Given he was going off to war, then I guess you would make one earlier. Mm. It's devastating for Servilia because it's the masks of your ancestors, and for her it's the mask of her son. I don't know if there are any societies where that seems wrong, where a child dies before their parent, but the Greeks and Romans were very big on this. Mm. They did make use of them. They would get people who looked like the person, or at least I guess their body was like them, to wear the masks in funeral processions. So it's as if the ancestors are able to come with you during the funeral of an important member of the family. Oh, so they would actually be worn. Yeah. So you, you pick But some- only for that ritual. Yeah. So you pick somebody out who kind of looks vaguely like the, the same figure. Exactly. That's Okay, That that's a bit morbid. When Sevilia puts the mask on her face in this, it that strikes me as a... 
uh, inviting bad omens kind of move. I, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, her slave, Eleni, says to her something like, don't do that, mistress. Yes. Your theory on that could be right, that she's inviting disaster by doing it. I, I guess I was reading it as uh, she's so distraught that psychologically she's sort of merging herself with Brutus. It could be both those things. Mm. The next part of this episode, we get a, a continuation of the Joe Castor's family was brutally murdered, uh, yet the person who is responsible for them being brutally murdered has been quite nice and taken her in <laughs> by the looks of it. But uh, that seems to be more of an obligation to Octavia than anything else or out of sympathy for... I don't think there's any sympathy no. in Artia's mm. body. It's just I'd always imagined I'd wed someone, someone different. You won't wed anyone at all if you come out all red and puffy. Artia has very kindly arranged for Jocasta to get married to Posca. Yeah, who's an ex-slave. An ex-slave. That so, shows how far she's fallen, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't really. I mean, it's a terrible match for Jocasta. I suppose for a modern audience, we look at it and think, oh, he's so much older than her. Mm. That would not be abnormal for the Romans at all. That's it's more right. a status thing. On the other hand, he's the ex-slave of Julius Caesar. He is. He is, and Artia refers to Jocasta as a penniless orphan. Who else would have you kind of thing? <laughs> and to be honest, everything we've seen of Posca would probably make him a kinder husband than many of the men in this series. Mm. Uh, I don't know. A bad thing's going to happen. I mean, Posca's got his fingers in all kinds of places. But, yes, uh, but Artia presents it as, you know, I know men. Yeah. And, you know, treat this one right and he'll take care of you. And, you know, probably not far off. Yep. I don't know. Posca seems to just be happy to be there, really. Yeah, he does seem happy, doesn't it? For, for once, somebody seems happy. Yeah. Whereas Jocasta is just in tears, which is not surprising because her whole family's been murdered. And I, it, it does show how transactional weddings mm. are, and, mm. and this will come into play later on in the episode, and I guess that this wedding is to set up our expectations for what a Roman wedding is. Yeah, I guess so. Is and and how they come about, you know, it's all about uh, standing in societies and. Yeah, I mean, Jocasta, I think is she's given the line of I just wasn't I wasn't expecting. What did she say? I wasn't expecting my wedding to be this, or I wasn't expecting to marry. Like yeah, this. I did, didn't expect her husband to to be this sort yeah. of person. I, I think that her family, or at least she sees it this way, were on the up. Yeah, they were common, but they were you know good money kind of common. It's hard to talk about this with really broad brushstrokes, but you get the impression, and it's largely from funerary inscriptions, so you've got to be careful because they're quite formulaic, is that lower down the, the status scale, people often did marry for affection, mm. more likely to than amongst the elites where marriage is more transactional. Okay. I mean, art here is elite, so it's not surprising she's got that point of view about it, that, you know, it's to do with merging households and estates and mm. great names and it's for the production of you know continuing that line whereas we got plenty of funerary inscriptions that sound affectionate yeah from ordinary people okay okay so maybe she had the expectation of marrying for love maybe yeah given that she's from the mercantile class or whatever but having said that i, I don't see why she would have been precluded from doing that still anyway even if her family was dead well, she's got no one to rely on now. She's got no... She's got no dowry. Wrong word for it, but yeah. No, there were dowries. And she's got no one to protect her, I mm. think, is 
we don't really get that kind of background detail, but just filling in the gaps. But now I mean, she's got Posca. Yeah, now she's got Posca. <laughs> and it could be worse. <laughs> uh, what What did you think of the wedding besides the tears? <laughs> It was okay. Roman weddings, they don't have to be elaborate at all, all right? It doesn't have to be much to them at all. You, there are certain rituals that seem to have happened, but none of them have to happen. So it's kind of tradition. Mm. So basically, you can be married by consent, and the consent is technically the bride and the groom. If there are families involved, then it's their consent as well. Does a priest need to be involved, which oh, is no. what happens here? They've, no. They've got well, a... they've got an auger, which is... Somebody who looks for water? That would be a diviner. An auger, well, originally their role is to divine the future by looking at the flight of birds. Yes. To yeah. augury. Yeah. But it seems to have become a bit broader than that. And they do seem to have been involved in weddings in that you'd have had an auger look at those patterns to see whether it's an auspicious day. Okay. So I don't know whether they called off weddings if the auger said no. I presume so. What's the point? It's like getting a bad weather forecast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the joining of hands, which is part of the ritual, and the person who does it is a woman, is pro, what she's called the pronuba, okay. which means going forth before the bride person, a woman who kind of prepares the bride for the wedding and carries out that ritual. So having a guy do it is a bit inaccurate. And I was trying to remember, I'm sorry, I, I only thought of this afterwards and I can go back and look, mm. what Jocasta was wearing. Because again, you don't have to wear this, but traditionally, apparently, the bride does wear a long white dress, which might seem familiar to us, okay. which they call the tunica recta, the straight tunic, straight dress, with a purple fringe or ribbons decorating it and a kind of sash, sometimes called a girdle, around the waist which is a bit like, I guess, the symbolism of our bridal veil. And there is a bridal veil as well, but that's kind of bright, saffrony yellow color called yeah. flameum, which means flamey. <laughs> <laughs> and the other ritual, which they didn't choose, I don't know why they wouldn't choose to give us this one, is before the wedding, the bride's hair is parted with a spear, which a spear which has killed an enemy of Rome. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? Where does that come from? Yeah, she's wearing a sort of yellowy dress, isn't she? So yeah. they've transferred the yellow to her dress. Sorry, I've just turned around the laptop to Rhiannon with the yeah. with the still of the what they're wearing. Uh, it looks very kind of you know fancy but functional. Mm. Yeah. And as I say, all of this is tradition, custom. None of it required. Mm. Another custom which they did show is where you are Gaius, I am Gaia, the other way around. Yes. So the Latin ubi tu Gaius ego Gaia. This yeah. is a thing, yeah? Yeah, it's a bit like the I do, I guess. Yeah, so, very much. So Gaius and Gaia are a bit like, I don't know, John Doe type, you know, it's a generic name. Oh, okay, so, so, so Gaia has nothing to do with the earth or anything. No, 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 no. It's the feminine version of Gaius. Okay. So it's kind of one of the most Roman of names. Yes, yes. So yeah. wherever you are a Roman man, mm -hmm. I will be a Roman woman is what it's saying really. Okay, okay. I'll go wherever you are. Yes. Oh, no. Nice vows, you know. It's sweet. Although we do have a, both a Gaius and a Gaia in the show. <laughs> And there is a carrying the bride over the threshold, which we, we don't get to see them. So we do get a procession in the second wedding. And yes. that procession is meant to be to the groom's house. But that was a big public that was a wedding. Big, that was, that was wedding. for the people, you know, yeah. more than anything. And the other thing which they left out entirely, because I think it would have been hard to explain, is that there seemed to be lots of 
um, sheep-related rituals. So it's the sacrifice <laughs> of a sheep. Yeah. They haven't really backed out of showing sacrifices. They could have had that. Mm. And then when the bride and groom are seated during the ceremony, they're on two separate seats, but which are joined by a sheepskin that's over both of them. Yeah. So there's some kind of importance of sheep. and <laughs> I guess sheep were the original property, actually. The yeah. word for a group of sheep is pecus, which gives us pecunia, which is the Latin word for money. So maybe it's to do with that. And the wife brings wool with her. She brings the spindle for her loom that she's going to weave the clothing for, maybe, for the household with, um, and that she brings into the household. Well, there weren't any sheep, but I, I did notice a lot of chickens during the wedding scene. <laughs> they like to do that, don't they, to show that it's kind of down and dirty. Yeah, it was it's, like a, yeah. a low camera angle yeah. through the chickens. I, I, I kind of noticed and appreciated that for some reason. I found it strange, if anything, that Mark Antony and Atia were at mm. this wedding. This is an ex-slave and a penniless orphan getting married. Why are they there? I don't know. Yeah. Is that weird and you've got no answer to it, or oh, is no, it going no. to be important later? Um, I mean, I guess Posca yeah. seems to now be working for Anthony. Yes, but even if, you know, you, you wouldn't turn up to your employee's wedding if you're a triumvir, would you? Wow. I wouldn't have thought Anthony would bother, <laughs> unless there's a lot of drink involved. And there was. And there was, Because yes. he turned up hungover to the triumvirate <laughs> Well, there you go. The Maybe morning. that's the reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the party, for the crash. Just like turned up to the office still dishevelled. <laughs> Let's not... Take this too long. We had quite the party after Posca's wedding. I did notice, though, and appreciate uh, him still taking every opportunity to kind of... Oh, he's ogling some woman, isn't he? Yeah. Artie is somehow not noticing and talking to about their (laughs) wedding. Probably just used to it. Considering that later on in the marital bed, uh, she's very much aware of the fact that he's probably had sex with his slaves, but still wants her to sell those ones, male and female, that he has had sex with in the past. (laughs) So, Anthony be Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's he's not really a keeper. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's not. But still, we love him and he's horrible. Mm. Now, after the wedding... Atia of the Julii, I call for justice. 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 We have Sevilia cursing Atia extensively, excessively. Mm. Part of this seems to be like a a final mental torture mm. kind of thing. What did you think of all of this? I don't know any evidence for something like that happening because we know there are curses. We've talked about this before. When mm. Sevilla did it before, she had one made and rolled up and put it in the wall of Artia's house. That's right. She did, didn't she? Or was it Julius Caesar's house? Oh, I think it was because Julius Caesar had spurned her. Yeah, yeah. Which didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was really dramatic and mm. very effective. And what she's saying... And it's very stately. I can't remember the exact words, but, you know, she's got the full name, hasn't she? Artie of the the Julia, I I call to justice. Yeah. It gives her the kind of elevated, dignified position, despite Mm. the fact that she's sitting there sometimes in the rain and thunder. All her hair's down. She's wearing dark clothes, which is an indication of mourning, which is no surprise. Mm. And she's having ashes thrown over her, which I think you have a theory that it's um, Brutus's ashes. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It seems like that would be a an extra sinister, effective 
way of doing a curse. If you really want, I'm sacrificing myself. These are the remains of of my son. And she was wearing his death mask at the beginning. Yeah. I, so mm. so that would only work if you know. Recall the last episode, people. If you believe Plutarch that Mark Antony had Brutus treated him with respect and sent the ashes back to Servilia. But that's not the version we were given on the battlefield. In no, the we, we were an anonymous body on the battlefield mm. unless they found him off screen. I don't know, but they, they don't explicitly say no, they that. Don't. They don't. They don't even say that these are ashes. They look like ashes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so it's an impressive scene. And it's strange that the suicide that you know that I was not entirely happy with Brutus not having, his death is presented differently, whereas the sources, they present it slightly differently, but they kind of agree that it is a suicide. That is kind of moved to Servilia. Yes. So Rhiannon Evans, history lecturer, this isn't something that we know happened. We we don't know the fate of Sevilia, do we? We don't. But also, we don't have any evidence of a feud with Artia. Mm. And Artia's dead, remember. So all of it is kind of fantasy territory by this point. Yeah. And we don't have any evidence of a break between her and Caesar. I know Caesar's long gone now. But that, of course, is what originally gives her a reason to be against the Julian clan. Mm-hmm. And that's how we've played out this feud between... It was kind of over Caesar, wasn't it? Caesar's attention is what she and Artia were fighting over initially. Uh, Initially, but then it became things like, you know, Octavia got involved. And there was a a relationship with Sevilla and Octavia that just went a bit question markish territory. There was attempts at poisoning. This storyline's gone everywhere between these two. Yeah. And this is both Sevilla losing the argument and winning the argument, Mm. I think. Yeah, and, and the way that she wins it is Anthony saying, now that's a death. He's obviously got a lot oh, of respect for her. Uh, his, his flippant kind of remark of, now that is an exit. Uh, that's it, <laughs> yes. So he always puts it much better than I could. I don't think it's entirely flippant. No, no. But, you know, oh, it's accurate and flippant. There's a bit of disbelief as well. I, I think it takes them by surprise. Hmm. I think they believe, especially Mark Antony believes that, Sevilla is just trying to call Artia out for a confrontation, mm. you yeah. know, to give her a public dressing down and, and maybe then humiliate she'll go away. her. Yeah, maybe you know, throw some chicken blood at her and off you go. Mm. But killing is quite a, you know, effective statement. This is a weird tangent as well, but I was quite impressed by the mosaic on the wall behind them as well. <laughs> just a, a nice geometric design there. And of course, her slave kills herself as well. Yes, Eileni. So that. Kind of speaks to the closeness between them, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, so part of the sacrifice that she makes is endurance, mm. because we've discussed this now, but it does take course over the entire episode. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And the indication of that is that it, you know, it gets dark, it rains, it's sunny again. She's all bedraggled. Mm. I guess ultimately, I think the curse was effective. Maybe. Well, that's what Artie is clearly thinking at the end of the episode. Yes. Yeah. It does seem to get to Artie mm. quite a lot. This curse. She seems very rattled by it, mm. and by Sevilla killing herself. And I think that's psychologically, it rings true because the Romans did take these curses seriously. Mm. So, yeah. What did you think of that as an exit for the character? I'm kind of glad she's been put out of her misery and that she got to do it in an incredibly dramatic and dignified way. Mm. Although it's, you know, 
it's pretty sad the road that they've taken Servilia along. Yes, it's been awful. Yes, I I don't think that there would have been a better way to do that though. Mm. Now, should we get down to business? Yes, by all means. Clearly, we three cannot all rule together at once. We shall only confuse and contradict each other. True enough. We must divide responsibilities. What are you proposing? I suggest we divide the territory of Rome into three. Each one of us shall assume command of one region. All right, so in this episode, we get, and I don't know that they call it this in as many words. I don't think the word triumvirate is ever mentioned, is it? No, but then they would have to explain what it means. Yeah. We get the formation of the triumvirate. Just call it the gang of three. Yeah, (laughs) but that's what this is. It seems to be a lot formalised, whereas in the last episode, it was just a, uh, we need to go kill Brutus and Cassius and Mm -hmm. have that battle, and we need to kill a lot of people in Rome because, you know, we need to, yeah, we need money. And we also just need to make sure that, you know, it is ours. Uh, Now it's the actual politicking of how are these three going to work together as a unit and how they're going to run the empire. Yeah, and not kill each other in the process. <laughs> I mean, that'll happen later. <laughs> what did you think of this and, and what we know about the triumvirate? How did it translate to screen for you? Well, again, it, it has to gloss over a lot of the detail and happening that way around. But it was an official pact mm-hmm. that they make. They divide up the world differently at first. They don't even seem to take the Eastern Empire into account. So initially, Antony wants Gaul. That's the West. That's what Octavian complains about getting. In real life. Yeah, initially. But it does change to that kind of East-West divide. Yeah. So I'll read you the quote from Dio, book 48, right at the beginning of book 48, chapter 1, which I think is where they're getting the way that they run it, the line that Octavian says, which we'll go through in a minute. Dio says, For it is a difficult matter for three men, or even two, who are equal in rank and as a result of war have gained control over such vast interests, to be of one accord. Mm. You're kidding. Hence, whatever they for a time had gained while acting in harmony for the purpose of overthrowing their adversaries, all this they now began to set up as prized to be won by rivalry with each other. All right, so I think that the beginning of that, the difficult matter, might be the inspiration for Octavian saying, clearly we three cannot all rule together at once. We will only confuse and contradict each other. I suggest we divide the territories. Yeah. So that kind of stands behind that. But as I say, the initial division didn't involve the East. So Dio goes on. They immediately redistributed the empire so that Spain and Numidia fell to Caesar. So that's Spain in the West, Numidia's in North Africa. Yeah. Gaul and Africa, which is another part of Africa called Africa, to Antony. And they further agreed that in case Lepidus showed any vexation at this, they should give Africa to him, So, which is what he ends up with. So <laughs> That's essentially how it went down in the episode. Yeah, Antony will give up Africa. Mm. But he wants Gaul because it's strategically important for Italy. And then later on, he'll go on a Parthian campaign. He'll go out east on campaign. Mm. And then the division seems to change so that Octavian specifically gets Italy. Mm. So that's kind of in the second version of this pact that they make. Okay, yeah. Um, either way, from the very beginning, it seems Lepidus, the most he was going to get is he might get the odd island in the Mediterranean, but basically he's getting Africa, mm. which, you know, is nothing to be sneezed at, but they don't see it as the prized possession. And of course, as Octavian says here, and as will be important as things go on, the East is where the money is, the resources are. 
Um, it's not nothing in Gaul. He's very dismissive about that. It's strategically important. And he will make great use of having stayed in Italy yeah. uh, in his propaganda. Mm. You know, I, Italy was behind me. Antony was off east with some queen or other. Mm. That it will work out for Octavian. So I don't think he would have expressed umbrage like that. But they kind of gloss over quite a few years of history to get to the point they were at by the end of it. Yeah, that w- it was all dispatched with fairly efficiently. Mm. But I think, you know, thoroughly enough, Octavian suggests the division and it's then Mark Antony who walks up to the map. And with he, sword in hand. Yes. And, and he <laughs> says, Octavian, you have Italy and Gaul and the Western provinces and I'll take Egypt in the east. And now Egypt shouldn't be included as part of Rome's territory in this instance. But anyway, Octavian protests saying, you know, you get all the wealth and the food and what have you, the the wealthy provinces, what does that leave me with? An argumentative Senate and a bunch of hairy Gauls, essentially. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they say, right, we'll, we'll pool everything in a central treasury. Mm-hmm. So that effectively says mm. everything that yeah. you said, but with less quotes. <laughs> well, and as I say, smushing together a few years and different versions of it, yeah. which I don't expect them to do. I did think the literal carving up of the map that was, was very great. effective. Yeah, that was very nonchalant. You Especially have Africa. The, yep. Let's just cut out this bit at the bottom <laughs> that we don't seem to care about. And that that's, that, that's not a nice way to talk about Lepidus. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's essentially what that was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the triumvirate, what we see there. They do have a lot of power, by the way. What they actually have, which I'm not sure is entirely clear through the series, is that each of them has consular power in Rome. And that's a huge amount of power. And it's not about, you know, annually it will change Mm. because this pact is for five years and it gets renewed. And then they have proconsular power in the provinces, which is like being a governor in the provinces. Yeah. So they have all the power. Mm. That is all the power. There is no other power. Everybody else who has a magistracy speaks to that power, is underneath that. They'll have to take their lead from that. Yeah. So they do have to find a way of managing three people having that amount of power. And it is... I mean, because it doesn't last. People don't really take in how much power they've usurped there. And I guess part of the reason is that people like Cicero aren't around anymore to complain about it. Yeah, yeah. They are just, you know, left to do what they like, I think. And the Senate has no power anymore. They have no, effectively have no authority through this period. Mm. Maybe if you were to give her the beating. Uh, Well, if you want. No, no, I... It's my wife, she insulted my responsibility. Marriage, it's complicated. <laughs> With her pregnant now, I think it drives them a little mad. The next storyline I, th- I guess that we're going to, to get to is what happens in, in Pullo's household. Violent sex aside... I fast-forward through it. Okay, yeah, well, <laughs> it, was, it was violent sex. Did you want to say anything about slave dynamics? Is is Gaia the property of anyone's to do with as she wants? I'm not too sure who she belongs to. Yeah, they haven't made that clear either. Have they? She seemed to be like a lusty barmaid at the beginning in, a, I don't know what it was, the Collegium, a brothel, yeah. some combination of the two. Yeah, so she showed up at the start of the season kind they, of serving drinks. So she, she's at, a, at some point they say she's Mascius's girl, don't they? What does that mean in terms of her status if she's a slave anyway? 
is it his bet on the side or does she actually belong to him or would she belong to Varinus as the leader of the household? I mean, they act as if she belongs to Polo. Polo is the one who's, according to Irene, is meant to slap her into shape. Yeah, but having said that, in an earlier episode, Varinus has sex with her and insists on paying her so that it's a transaction. Hmm. Which wouldn't happen if she's a slave. Wow. Okay. They haven't made it clear enough for us to really comment on it because if Polo beats her up either through violent sex or, as is initially envisaged, he's just going to beat her up, then he has to be her master or told to do it by her master because okay. otherwise her master or mistress can sue Polo for damage to property. Right. So that's the position of a slave. But nobody mentions that because they haven't made clear where she belongs in this weird group of households. Mm. And I think it's to do with the differentiation of the households not being particularly clear either. They all just seem to hang out at the collegium now. Yeah. So it's hard for us to say what's going on there and how that would relate to Roman law. But there are very specific laws in relation to slaves and mm-hmm. it regards them entirely as property. They have no bodily autonomy. You know, Gaia has no rights over her body, but somebody has rights over it. I guess in this episode, it's Pullo who is exercising those rights and enforcing her place in the household. Mm. It's like a morbid episode of Full House, this collegium. I've never seen Full House. <laughs> I've, never, <laughs> I've never seen the things you refer to. That's our problem. Everyone in the show is living in the one house. Okay. Trying to figure out the dynamics of the family, mm. whether they be feeding the people, killing the people, or trying to have sex with the people. Mm-hmm. That's essentially Full House. Okay. (laughs) I don't want to watch it now. I'm very much uh, misremembering the 80s, I think. Okay. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. So that's that storyline. And and also falling into the uh, that's that storyline category, I think, is what's happening with Verena. Verena the Elder being left little rope dolls by... Memio's man, clearly as a kind of long game to be able to blackmail her into spying on her dad. But having said that, she seems very willing to go along with that. Yeah. Yeah, she does. Every bit of that is creepy. It is extremely creepy. And the fact that it is these little dolls reminds us how young she is, even though she's been through some terrible experiences and had to grow up fast. Yeah. The fact that she's responding to that... It makes it creepier, doesn't it? Because it reminds us of her young age. Mm. I mean, in Roman terms, she's very much old enough to be married. And if you remember way back, she claimed that child was hers to protect her mother and was married off. Mm. So Mm. she's regarded as an adult by the Romans, but we're watching it in the 21st century and it's not comfortable viewing for us. They're playing on that. Okay. So we don't have to talk about that again. That's good. That's good. That's, (laughs) yeah, that's that storyline. It's interesting where that will go. Mm. You know, you could not see that going anywhere good. No, no. Yep. no I can't see anything going anywhere good for anybody no, except no. Octavian. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, for the last few episodes, there have been people dying in every episode. Mm. You know, Brutus, Cassius, and Cicero gone in one episode. This episode, Sevilla, gone. Just It just continues. Happy show. <laughs> Herod? Mm. Let's talk about Herod and then we'll we'll finish talking about wedding stuff. Yeah. More wedding stuff. Okay. Herod visits Rome. 
I love seeing Herod because it's such a small note in the history books that I like that they could be bothered about it and to mm. kind of fold him into the Jewish elements of this show that they were running with. Yeah. It would be interesting if they, you know, in that alternate universe where they had the five series to play with. Yes. And to see whether they did what you've already mentioned, which is show us Cleopatra's involvement with Herod and that oh, power yeah, play. Yeah. And that would have been a kind of storyline for a female character that actually is about their power and their their place in the world. Mm. But we don't get that and we're not going to get it because there's no time, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do get is a great, thank God the newsreader's back. Newsreader's back, yes. Yeah, and yes. we're told that mockery of Jews should be limited during this time. <laughs> it's, you know, it's... I liked that that, was, that had yeah. to be a public announcement. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this. We don't have an awful lot of evidence for that kind of mockery, for people shouting insults at Jews specifically. Mm. There's one line in a poem by Juvenal, who's in the early second century, where he's talking about what the Jews use in their rituals, which he seems to just not understand. Yeah. And that's a bit dismissive. But I don't think we have a lot of open mockery, which isn't to say that it didn't happen. I can and, imagine that it would have happened. Yeah. And we know that there was violent put-downs of the Jewish people, as mm. there were of many people throughout the Roman world, and that one of the issues that the Romans have with the Jews is they don't understand monotheism. So that's a place for them to come into conflict. Yeah. So, yeah, it probably happened. That, so you know, they, I think they know it's fair there's enough. an existing relationship here. If you married Octavia, then Rome knows that it's purely a political alliance. Mm. So that was the whole reason. And also the possibility of having children. Which they do have. Yes. So, yeah, it's between that wedding and this wedding, it's showing how it's just by arrangements. Yeah. Yeah, which it was. And, you know, it as is. As far what as Herod visiting Rome of- to make a deal with Mark Antony in this scene, for him to be made the legitimate ruler of Judea. This kind of gels well with the the history books, isn't it? And I guess it does play directly into what they want to get to in this episode, which Mm. is already bringing the rule that Antony and Octavian and Lepidus have over Rome into question about how they're going to function well as a team. Yeah, well, I mean, the the main source we have for this actually is a Jewish writer, Josephus, who's writing from the time of the later Jewish war in the Flavian period. But he says that Mark Antony in this period resolved to get Herod made king of the Jews and told them it was for their advantage in the Parthian War. So this is Mark Antony playing politics so that he's got, I don't know, a jumping off point to go and fight the Parthians or support in that area. So he wants Herod to be king. So they all gave their votes for it. So this is the senators. And when the Senate was separated, Antony and Caesar, that is Octavian, went out with Herod between them, while the consul and the rest of the magistrates went before them in order to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods and to lay the decree in the capital. Antony also made a feast for Herod on the first day of his reign. Because if Antony's involved, there's going to be a party. <laughs> that's not into Cephas, but, you know, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. impression we get. Yeah, yeah. I think that all comes across very good. But the other part of this storyline is that Timon and Levi mm. see that Herod's in town and built up on what's been happening in the previous episodes, uh, which is they see Herod as selling them out to the Romans, Mm. despite the fact that these two men are living and working in Rome. Mm -hmm. They have a problem with that. They want 
the Jews to be independent. They want Judea to be its own thing. Therefore, they've got to kill Herod. Mm. Now, I guess, you know, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. That doesn't happen because we've had a very conflicted time in this Mm. season. But he ultimately decides that, no, this isn't something that he's going to take part in. And it seems to be when he sees art here that he changes his mind. Oh, is that what you read? Yeah, in the procession. He does catch sight of her. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Maybe that he's remembering all the terrible, violent things he did at her behest. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't want to be part of that anymore. That would make more sense, though, if he didn't kill his brother. Yeah, that's... You know, mm. letting your brother go and try and do his own thing well, and gonna... not taking part of it is one thing and killing your brother is another. That part of it seemed strange to me. I did like, and I'm, I'm not sure I liked myself for liking the kind of dark humor of Levi saying, you know, if we get out of this and time and saying, oh, we're not going to survive this. Well, like, it's true. There's yeah. no way to survive this. No. And he says it in a way that's, that I think, meant to come across as, yeah, it's sort of black humor, isn't yeah. it? yeah. I find that enjoyable, but it's really dark and mm. sad mm. that that was the choice that they felt they had. That's an end to Levi. So as a result of Herod making this deal with Mark Antony, he pays money, which <laughs> I think it's Posca who suggests the figure. 20,000. 20,000. And Herod agrees with it very quickly, mm. which means <laughs> clearly they should have asked for more money. Well, Anthony says that, <laughs> yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. Posca asks for his cut, mm. which I kind of like, because that's a sign of Posca that we, we don't get very often, and but we're getting to see a bit but, more of. And you know what? I think Caesar would have given it to him. You reckon? Yeah. Even though he's a slave. Well, he's an ex-slave now. He's an ex-slave now. Yeah, but Caesar was very generous. Yeah. And actually, Mark Antony is supposed to be very generous in the accounts we have of him. And it would have been very smart for him to pay Posca yeah. to keep him on side. Absolutely. Yeah. He doesn't have Posca's loyalty as a result of this decision. Stupid. Posca goes straight to Mycenaeus. Mycenaeus knows a good deal when he sees it. And I, I like that those two characters, you know, are getting a little bit more screen time in this episode. Mm-hmm. And when Mark Antony goes to Octavian next, the first thing Octavian says is, what's a third of a share of 20,000? Mark Antony knows exactly what he's going on about, but he wants to know, where did you hear that from? (laughs) Where did you hear this? Who told you this? What news, young Caesar? What is one third of 20,000? 6,666 or thereabouts. Do you take me for a fool? Question after question. Makes for very poor conversation. I don't know how Posca thought he would have gotten away with it. I still don't think he has. Oh, no, neither do I. Yeah. I bought off one of Herod's men. He's not going to believe that. Did you now? Did you? What I do quite like about this, although I worry about Posca, is that, you know, we sort of know that Mycenaeus was the phrase that's often used as right-hand man of Octavian. Mm. And this is showing us one of the ways that that might be true. Yes. I mean, yep. we have no evidence for any of this at all, mm. except that Herod would have given money to Antony. But that this is a kind of, you know, the kind of backroom deals that yeah. Mycenaeus might have helped out with. It's all the little politicking. Yeah, yeah. And I also liked how uh, Mycenaeus said, uh, we'll give the newsreader something to read out. We'll come up with a statement. Just like the newsreader is an omnipotent kind of title <laughs> thing. He doesn't have a name and everyone knows who it's applying yeah. to. It's just yeah. a newsreader. <laughs> they, at this point as well, also come up with the marriage pact. Mm. Oh, they very soon after come up with the marriage pact. So can you imagine yourself into the mind of someone who doesn't know that Antony marries Octavia? 
Because you know they try and show Artie at the wedding. Artie, and Artie we're is, meant to yeah. think it's her wedding, but we know it's not. And Artie also really much. sets herself up yeah. as well yeah. during these negotiations later on, uh, which, you know, I was surprised that well, she I had... To, a, I have to have <laughs> all of your rooms refurbished. I'm happy <laughs> to move your house, but, you know, it'll need to be renovated. Yeah. If I didn't know that was all going to happen, it might have taken me by surprise as well. But... Mark Antony is being evasive the entire time. Oh, yeah. Now, do you think, because Mark Antony says it was Octavian's idea that he marry Octavia. Mm. Do you think that that's the case? Or do you think that Mark Antony said, no, I don't want to marry Artia. I want to marry Octavia. Ooh, did we find out? We don't. Ah. We completely don't find out. In this episode, at least, I can't speak for other episodes. Well, I think it's pretty likely that Octavian... He might well have suggested it because mm. he's never been happy with that affair that his mother's having with Anthony. He hates Anthony anyway. Doesn't seem to hate his sister, so marrying her to Anthony doesn't seem to add up in my mind in some ways. Yeah, he doesn't hate her, but, you know, it's it's completely a business transaction. Yeah, it is. It and is. this is why they used the previous wedding to kind of set this all yeah. up as well, so that you see how these kind of things work. So you're reading Mark Antony as even more unscrupulous or somebody mm. who's engaging in machinations than we definitely know from what we see on screen. Yeah. For the Romans, the birth of children is the point of marriage. And Antony has children with all of his wives, mm. possibly the first one we don't know much about, but certainly the other four. It would make sense. Yeah. It's, it's my, not the version of Antony we've been given. Though. Yeah. On the other hand, he's never looked that keen on marrying Artia, has he? No. And, and I wonder if that's why what it's been building up and leading towards him being so dismissive to the idea, you know, not exactly correcting her when she mentions marriage or anything like that, but not playing along with it hugely. No. It's just a look on his face. He mm. never actually says, you realise we're not getting married, does he? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's Mycenaeus in this episode who basically says... If Artia married Antony, then it would have been because they are in love and all of Rome knows that, you know, they, they know that there's an existing relationship here. If you married Octavia, then Rome knows that it's purely a political alliance. Mm. So that was the whole reason. And also the possibility of having children. Which they do have. Yes. So, yeah, it's between that wedding and this wedding, it's showing how it's just by arrangements. Yeah. Yeah, which it was. And, you know, it is what they presented to be a way of cementing the pact. I mean, mm. it's where we started with the whole... Do you remember right at the beginning, Julius Caesar's daughter is shown dying in childbirth? Oh, for Pompey's Pompey. wife. That's right, yeah. And that's kind of the end of that pact, mm. which, which our texts largely present that as being one of the really important factors in the breakdown. It's not an official pact, but the unofficial alliance that they've got going. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very weird, though, for Antony to break the news for this while he's in bed with Atia. <laughs> Antony's just outrageous, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Just because this is happening, it doesn't mean anything has to change for us. <laughs> and, and Octavian watching. Yeah, well, that's what I mean about the peep show aspects mm. of this episode that yeah. I found very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and she does read this as the effect of Sevilla's curse, doesn't she? I think so. Playing, yeah, playing they may be um, Sevilla's voiceover. All of this happening, you know, food will taste like ash and mm. those sort of things. And mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, but it's going to get worse. Mm. <laughs> you can always say this with that show. <laughs> I hate strong flavors. If you put it in willow tea, you won't taste it at all. I'll give you some horsetail in case there's much bleeding. Now that's all right. 
don't need that. So the episode ends on Gaia going to see a medicine woman of some sort, and she buys Silphium and Hellebore. The insinuation here is trying, trying to abort a baby. She says to, you've yeah. caught it early. Oh, okay. Okay. It actually it made it that explicit, yeah, did yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So she assumes that it's for Gaia herself. Yes. That's why she doesn't understand when she suggests some other medication which will lessen the, maybe the loss hair? of blood. Yeah. Yeah. And Gaia says, oh, I don't need that. Yeah. And she looks confused. Yeah. And the reason Gaia doesn't need it is because it's not for her and she doesn't care how much Irene suffers. I thought it ended in that very sinister note. It was a very sinister but we, note. we yeah. know she's going to do something terrible now. Yeah. Also, you know, something could have eventuated from what happened between her and Paulo. Yeah, I guess so. And that's it for this episode. So did you like, sorry, did you want to say anything about us, Sylphium being Only if thing? you want to. So did you like the episode? I didn't. Now that, no, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> too many sex scenes. Yeah. And too much perving on the sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Given how much we're rushing through the history, and I don't want to make it sound like all we should have is history and like watch a documentary if you want that. Mm. But like I can understand Antony and Artia. I mean, that's the basis for their, it's not all of their relationship, but, you know, it is very much based on their mutual attraction. A lot of the rest of it, I think it was just, I don't know, playing to what they think the audience wants. We had five sex scenes in this episode. Okay. Honestly, honestly. But I don't know whether people listening are going to think that I'm just a prude. I am, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Atia and Mark Antony, Mark Antony and Octavia, Octavia and Agrippa, Mm -hmm. Verena and Memeo's guy. I'd forgotten about Octavia and Agrippa, but yeah. Paula and Gaia. And Paulo even tried to get some as well with his pregnant wife. He did. Never yeah, he's works. A sensitive guy. Yeah, yeah. That was that was a lot. But having said that, death of Sevilla, great way to go. Mm. Yeah, that was the centerpiece of of the episode, and worth it for that. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can follow us on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and we are also on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. Until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. Now that is an exit.